I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. If, as the saying goes, learning happens everywhere, how can our community-based programs, the ones outside the classroom that serve and engage our children and youth, how can they use the science of learning and development to rethink and redesign what kids do after the end of school bell rings? Karen Pittman just might be the perfect person to ask. Pittman is co-founder, president, and CEO at the Forum for Youth Investment, whose mission is simple and daunting to change the odds that all children and youth are ready for college, work, and life. To be fair, though, I'm not sure much is daunting to Pittman. She's a globally recognized leader in youth development, launching new organizations and initiatives at virtually every stop. Those stops include the Urban Institute, Children's Defense Fund, and Clinton Administration, as well as a stint with retired General Colin Powell to create America's Promise, an umbrella group that connects hundreds of national nonprofits, businesses, community leaders, and more focused on helping young people succeed. Pittman has won numerous honors, written three books, and was named one of the 25 most influential leaders in after school by the National After School Association. So can learning, in fact, happen anywhere? Here's my conversation with Karen Pittman. Karen, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you. So let's start at the very top. What is youth development well, youth development, first and foremost, is a, a process in young people's life. It's a, it's a developmental stage. Uh, so people are familiar with the idea of child development and early childhood development. And youth development really is the process that young people go through uh, between early childhood and adulthood. Uh, so you could say roughly by the time they end up coming into school until the time that they're coming out of school and certainly coming out of college. Uh, that developmental process um, really is reinforced by the idea that young people's primary goal is to learn and develop and that learning and development happen in lots of settings. So when we talk about having a youth development approach, we're talking about making sure that we have staff that under, understand child and youth development and understand how to promote young people's sense of competencies, skill building, and agency through a range of activities that they may find in their schools, in their communities, in their families, um, and even as they move later into the teenage years in employment settings. I keep hearing the concept, learning happens everywhere. What does that mean to you? Well, it means, quite frankly, that learning does happen everywhere. We do an easy test uh, when we go out to talk to audiences, and we ask people to close their eyes and remember uh, an important or significant learning experience. And about 80% of the time, that experience was not in the classroom. Um, it was someplace else where they were actively engaged. Uh, they were challenged to explore something new. They were learning uh, a skill or a lesson that had personal implications to them. They were with an adult that they had a deep relationship with. Um, that doesn't mean that these things can't happen in school, but that's exactly the conversation that we're about to have about how we translate what we now know about how learning happens into uh, schools as they're, as they're currently functioning. So let's talk about that, and let's talk about the science, and in particular the science of learning and development. Um, when you, you deal with community partners, parents, children, frequently with people who are in the business of learning and development, but who may not be familiar with the science, how do you describe the science to them? 
We describe the science actually in very easy ways uh, because while they may not be up to date on uh, the new science coming out of the wonderful brain research uh, that really reinforces how learning happens, um, when you talk to people who are in what would sort of be called the youth development field, and those folks are working in organizations that primarily start with the idea that we want to create places where young people can build relationships, they can feel safe and supported and a part of a community, they can then be introduced to a range of learning experiences, but the the settings are not driven by delivering content, they're driven by developing relationships uh, and a sense of belonging that then young people use to explore or master content in any of a number of areas, and then really explicitly name and build what most people in the practical world would call life skills, problem solving, uh, teamwork, uh, persistence, critical thinking, time management, uh, obviously self-regulation, learning how to resolve conflicts. All of those things are done naturally in what we would call these sort of community youth development settings. Mm. Uh, And so what we're doing is really bringing the science in to validate uh, what they have been doing because – Distinct from school, these settings have not basically been charged with moving out academic content across a set schedule um, and testing young people to make sure that they're actually mastering a specific kind of content. So they have had much more freedom to lead with what we now know are the basic elements that have young people really able and willing to learn, which are this idea of relationships um, and experiences and belonging, sets the stage for young people actually being able to learn whatever the content is um, that we want to deliver to them. So we can be more explicit about how the science can help. We can be more explicit about um, what kind of adult practices are needed um, to create those settings and build those relationships. But these organizations that are working in community, and often these are people who are working in school during the school day, Mm. but they may not be the formal classroom teachers, and we can talk more about that. They've come into this with with the basic orientation that learning starts with a foundation of relationship and support. And historically, is that where the drop-off is? So, you know, the, the child is in school, the, kid, the, the youth is in school, and there, there are relationships there, and there's certainly a sense of belonging. And then the school bell rings, and the day ends. And, you know, the question is, where does that child go, and where does that child go to, to develop additional relationships, to develop additional belonging, and to, to continue that social and emotional learning? Is that kind of historically where the, the drop-off was, and is that the gap that uh, really needs to be filled? I would probably talk differently about sort of drop-off and gaps, but yep. I would I would back up um, to to give you an example of uh, sort of this to underscore this idea of how learning happens. So there is uh, a researcher at the University of Illinois, uh, Champlain, uh, Reed Larson, who probably about 20 years ago, he's an adolescent psychologist. Um, he was studying motivation um, and, uh, and achievement, uh, not academic achievement, but just sort of intrinsic motivation and what, what does it take for young people to actually want to learn and master anything. Um, at this point, this was before cell phones and everything else, he gave young people beepers, and they were beeped at certain points during the day and asked to take out a little notebook and write down, essentially, whether their head was engaged, 
and whether their heart was engaged. Mm. So were they passionate about what they were doing? And were they literally paying attention? Were they working hard and thinking about what they were doing? What he found was that if they were in class, they weren't terribly either. <laughs> their heads weren't really engaged and their hearts weren't really engaged. They were going through the motions. If he beeped them and they happened to be with their friends, their hearts were engaged, <laughs> but their heads weren't, which is how we end up with risky behaviors in adolescent years. Um, if he beeped them and they were in a sports um, activity, you had higher levels of both. But he found that they named these other things that he ended up calling voluntary youth organizations. He wasn't even aware, really, of what they were. But when they were beeped and they were at a boys and girls clubs mm -hmm. or they were at a drama cl class or they were in an extracurricular activity that was something that was focused on content of their choosing, um, had them with people that they liked – um, it had them engaged in something that had some kind of arc to it. You saw the highest levels of both them concentrating and their being sort of engaged and motivated uh, from a relationship perspective. And so he then started studying what these things were. They were only spending an average of about 10 or 15% of their time in those things. But that was where, from uh, an intrinsic motivation perspective, that was of interest to him because that's really where you're most likely to to learn things that are going to stick and be relevant for your life. So that's what we're looking for. And the question is, where do we find that? Um, it's a different way to come at this question. Now that we really understand how learning happens, mm -hmm. we can, we, it's, it's important for us to not just think, well, there's this building called school that kids come into in the morning, they leave in the afternoon, and then where do they go? That's certainly an important question. That's an access question. We know that low-income kids, for example, by the time they get to the end of third grade, have had, I think, about 6,000 hours less of any kind of organized activities outside of school than higher-income kids. So we know that there are inequities in the availability of things to do when you leave that building, which leads to both opportunities missed in terms of learning, and it also leads to opportunities increased in terms of dangerous or risky behavior because they're not supervised. Um, but we can ask the question differently by just staying inside the school building and asking, are we taking full advantage of all of the places where learning, not just academic content learning, but developmental learning, where learning could happen and where these skills that we're talking about could be reinforced during the day in the building, um, which is under control of schools? So if we're not just looking at the academic classes where core content is being taught, we're looking at your elective classes if you're in middle school or high school. We're looking at your extracurricular activities. We're looking at what's happening on the playground, the cafeteria, the gym, the hallways. All of those, the counselor's office, the nurse's office, all of those are places where, where young people can be building relationships or can be threatened uh, in relationships. They're all places where adults can be interacting in ways that reinforce uh, skills and build relationships and build trust, or they can be tearing those things down. And so the challenge that we have um, with K-12 as we currently define it is it's so focused on academic content that not only have we not thought a lot about what happens to young people when they leave school, we haven't given sufficient attention to all the places where learning broadly defined could be happening and could be being reinforced inside of school. Where are the bottlenecks around that understanding? The bottlenecks are really related to the idea that there's a competition between teaching academic content and teaching social and emotional skills. 
which is why this new commission that just wrapped up, the National Commission on Social and Emotional uh, uh, and Academic Development, really focused on the idea that these things have to be integrated together. And that's where the science comes back and says, not only is it efficient to integrate them, it's essential because if young people, if they don't feel like they're socially accepted, if they don't feel like they're emotionally safe, the brain kicks in and they're not in an optimal, in in an optimal position to be learning anything. Um, It's also very clear and very important that we separate the idea of academic content from cognitive skill building because cognitive skill building happens in all the time and it happens connected to lots of different content. The way we currently, for the most part, deliver academic content in terms of we're, we're assuming that this young person is an empty vessel and we're pouring that academic content in. And I know there are lots of ways that we're not doing that, but that still is the way a lot of traditional curricula are done. We're bringing you the content, the adults, the expert, the content is being delivered to young people, then they're tested to see if they learn the content. That's the historical standardized approach, right. isn't Right. That's it? the historical approach. And, you know, I'm going to give you the content over a certain number of weeks. I'm going to give you short tests and then a long test and then a standardized test to see if you mastered the content. In that approach, stopping to talk to young people about their emotions, stopping to ask questions and build relationships, uh, stopping to even make sure we're naming and acknowledging the cognitive processes that are going on, problem-solving, critical thinking, etc., all of that seems like it's taking time away from content delivery. And so it's very hard when you start talking to the academic classroom teachers, even though they understand, and there have been so many surveys now that say that Classroom teachers fundamentally believe that more time should be spent on helping young people practice and reinforce uh, and and build uh, these broader uh, uh, sort of 21st century skills, whatever you want to call them, these critical skills that are needed for life, that more time should be spent on it. But they also simultaneously say they don't have time. So that cert- certainly means it must be somebody else's job. And that tension is coming from the way we currently are asking teachers to deliver content and, frankly, from the way that we are currently measuring academic success. As you interact with community partners and as you think about community partners and you, as you think about that time that um, youth spend you know, after that school bell rings, do, do those community partners, as they get an understanding of the, the science and, and of all of this, do they see their role as helping um, kind of fill the social and emotional learning or advance or, or help with those skills because the schools don't necessarily um, fulfill that capability as much as uh, one might like? Or do they not see their role so much as, uh, you know, filling in what school might not be offering, but instead thinking that learning happens everywhere, and we've got the kids here, and so we ought to be helping them grow in all of the appropriate ways. It's a both and. Mm -hmm. So at this point, the country has actually, for a variety of reasons, acknowledged that our overall goal should be more and better learning opportunities. Um, That that there are enough things that we want young people to be able to do in the 21st century um, and enough experiences that we want them to have that communities across the country are making, and the federal government for that matter, with the 21st Century Learning Centers, that we're making 
systematic investments in making sure that young people have access to after-school, out-of-school summer opportunities, additional opportunities for learning that happen beyond the school day. Sometimes that happens by actually having the school system extend the school day and extend the school year. Sometimes it happens through partnerships. Uh, sometimes it happens independently. But the commitment for communities to actually say, we want to make sure that these opportunities are available. And in particular, we want to make sure that these opportunities are available to young people and families who can't afford them. In the mm -hmm. same way that we're making sure that K-12 opportunities are available during the school day, we want to extend that commitment to making sure that young people have at least some access to additional learning opportunities in the afternoons, the weekends, and the summers. So from a policy perspective, from a resource perspective, we've been on a path for the past 10 plus years to actually really say that these additional learning opportunities matter and that they should be available. One of the things that happened along the way was that we then had to clarify what those additional learning opportunities should look like and what their primary goal should be. Uh, and there was a there was a tension for a while between saying this was just more time to do the same thing that you do in school, mm. um, and the community pushed back hard on that, and 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 has it's taken a while to come back, but the first argument for basically putting public funding into the space was an argument that said, well, we've got a bunch of kids who are behind in school, let's give them more time to do what they didn't do from nine to three. And so we were just extending time for homework and we were extending academic summer school. We were doing the same thing and putting the kids through. That really wasn't necessarily helping close the achievement gap. Uh, and so over time, we've come back to argue that there are complementary things that need to be happening in that time space. And the science has helped us with that. Um, the economic analysis that show that young people don't just need academic content, they need time to name and practice and build these broader uh, skills that are useful for the workforce, that are useful for post-secondary education, that employers are saying even high school graduates are showing up without sufficient skills to really be good entry-level employees because they haven't built these skills, which developmentally there's no reason why they couldn't build them, except that we haven't prioritized them and given young people a chance to actually practice and master them in different environments. So from that perspective, the community organizations have sort of said this is a complementary space. If you can't get these things done in school for all the reasons that we just said because of the overemphasis on how academic content is delivered, then we should do this outside of school. And so these traditional organizations, whether those are youth organizations like WISE, et cetera, or community organizations or faith-based organizations, are being more explicit about the complementary role that they can play to support these skills with families, which both covers time uh, and, and gets more, but also balances out the better learning opportunities by leading with building these skills through building relationships and, and giving young people a chance to pick what they want to work on uh, voluntarily, what topics they want to work on and, and, and interest areas. But there's also a part of this that's compensatory to the other an answer to your question. There are neighborhoods, there are community organizations in which there's a very clear sense that their, their schools are failing their children. And so children are leaving school to come into programs in which they are both focusing on 
trying to get them a different approach to building up their academic skills to close those gaps, as well as um, building the other social skills and giving them other experiences. So some of the programs are complementary, some of the programs are compensatory, and some of the programs are, are frankly, uh, sort of cultural, acknowledging the big gap um, between uh, the who the teachers are in schools, which or heavily uh, sort of white and female, and who the young people are in the community um, that are attending uh, some of the schools, and really finding ways to explicitly help young people understand um, what their what their culture is and how um, who they are and where they live is impacting their educational experience. So you've got all kinds of things happening in this broader space. I want to follow up on on one area of it that you're you're talking about, and that is th- this concept of equity and then the the economic opportunity. I, I, I read where you recently said, if we're really going to address equity issues and embrace this idea that learning is social-emotional, we really have to acknowledge the importance that community partners play. And that's, that's you know, to the heart, I think, of what you're talking about. To then bring up another topic that you just raised, the economics, can youth interventions, youth development, help young people climb the income ladder? The short answer to that is yes. Um, High-quality educational programs, um, again, whether they're in school or out of school, if we're doing the right thing with young people in terms of developing their learning experience, we have a huge impact on their life trajectories. This was demonstrated powerfully um, very recently uh, with the study that that uh, James Heckman just put out, um, the 50-year study of the Perry Preschool Project. Yes. And the Perry Preschool Project is the project that sort of gave us the idea um, from a policy perspective that we should implement Head Start. We should have public funding for early childhood education. That project is known uh, for the fact that low-income children put into a uh, high-quality preschool experience, basically as you track them over time longitudinally, had much better life outcomes. They were more likely to finish high school and get post-secondary education. They were more likely to be employed and employed at higher salaries. They were less likely to be involved with the criminal justice system. They were more likely to delay pregnancy and parenthood. All the things that you would want really were directly related back to um, other things being equal, the fact that they had this high-quality experience. What we need to understand is that it wasn't just that they had access to preschool. It was that they had access to a preschool experience that David Weikert, who was the person who ran the High School Educational Research Foundation and and put the high, put the Perry Preschool Project in place um, because of his concern about low-income kids going disproportionately into special education. So he was looking for a way for them to actually sort of bypass going into that system uh, by giving them a high-quality education. And his concept of active learning is exactly what we're now talking about. It was relationship-rich, supportive, giving young people natural opportunities to explore all kinds of content, giving them opportunities to build and use this broad set of skills which let them move into school, and this wasn't changing school. Whatever school they moved into, they moved in with a higher sense of competence, a higher sense of confidence in their ability to be good learners, and better social skills, which allowed them to move forward. What's so fascinating about the new study that just came out is that the children of the Perry preschool participants are doing better than their control group. 
that's incredible that we have an intergenerational effect of the power of, of having that early childhood experience. Um, and so that's sort of been all over the news for the past couple of weeks. The piece that's not known and hasn't been publicized but is equally important is that David Weikert had this idea of active learning, which basically is now what we know about the science of learning. And his commitment was to not just use it to set up quality preschools, but to actually demonstrate that you could change the trajectory of uh, young people's experiences um, and life outcomes all the way up through young adulthood. And so he set up uh, in the 70s something called the High Scope Educational Camp for Teenagers, in which you created essentially a residential after-school program for eight weeks. Um, that was, a, that was setting up this kind of ideal learning environment in which diverse group of teens, 12 to 18, would come, and then they would go forth. Um, later on, he basically attached that active learning residential experience to schools. He got schools to basically identify talented, underserved, but underperforming sort of teens who were low-income teens. Those teens and their teachers would have a two-week experience um, as a group to really recalibrate themselves as a learning group. And that's really what they were doing. You were, even as young people were coming into high school, you were giving them an intense experience and giving their teachers an experience to see what they could do. That group then went back into their regular high school without further intervention, and their life trajectories changed. They were more likely to go off to college and more likely to complete college. So we can do this, um, but it really isn't about whether the environment is in school or out of school. It's about the quality of the learning environment, and that's what the science is telling us. So then practically we have to ask, where are the places where young people spend their time, where we have the most flexibility to create that quality learning environment quickly? That happens to be in the community versus in the K-12 system, just because of the level of accountability for academic outcomes and the way those are currently being spelled out in the K-12 system. Learning happens everywhere. And, and to be able to change yes. life trajectories like you just described, um, I, I would assume that that that's at the heart of what it's all about. Um, quickly, I want to ask you about um, policy and public policy and how these um, these types of things get scaled. Because you mentioned earlier in this conversation, it, it requires funding. Um, the House Appropriations Committee recently released its fiscal year 2020 bill, which includes um, $260 million for a social-emotional learning initiative that will support SEL and whole child approaches to education. Um, how significant do you find that, uh, you know, and even if it's not enough, um, how important is it to just establish that level? And if you could talk as well just a little bit about evidence-based policy and how you and the forum support policymakers um, in efforts to build and use evidence in the policymaking process, and maybe that was even used to help impact this, uh, this funding bill. It's, it's hugely significant because it, it, it basically, from a policy perspective, sort of, you know, puts our foot in the door. It names the importance of investing in social-emotional learning, and it names the importance of investing in this whole-child approach, which means, you know, essentially we have to pay attention to all of the competencies that young people need to have, not just their academic ones. You know, the challenge that we will have with that even coupled with the wonderful work that the commission, uh, the National Commission did and the powerful work that's coming out of the SOLD initiative, the proof will be in the pudding about how that is used. Um, you know, 
you know, several years ago, we had ESSA come out um, and the fifth indicator, which allowed uh, schools to name an indica- a non-academic indicator. Um, and this is another opportunity for us to begin to say there's something more that should be happening inside of these buildings than just the, the strict promotion of academic success as measured by grades and test scores. But we have a lot of room to define what that is. And so while these the dollars and the message is that we should pay attention to this, we're going to have to quickly go down to the state and local levels um, and make sure that it's being defined in the way that really um, leverages the science as much as we can. And that leads directly to this conversation about evidence-based policy. Mm. Um, We have two messages there. One is that evidence should be used to improve uh, and not to shut down. Um, that for the most part, when policymakers uh, use evidence, they use evidence to basically do a thumbs up, thumbs down vote on whether a program should be continued or discontinued. Uh, and that's often happens, um, and that has happened over time, it's been threatened over time to shut down the 21st century uh, learning centers program around after school because the evidence says X. The way that we really need to be using evidence is for improvement. Um, uh, not just for proof of whether something should be there or not. And that's a different kind of an approach. It's a more nuanced approach, which means that we need to be using public evaluation dollars to not just ask whether a specific branded program worked or didn't work and therefore should be replicated, but actually bringing in processes to help systems and organizations assess what they're doing against standards and then find identify ways to improve them and then demonstrate that they have improved. And if they can improve, then uh, individual organizations should be eligible for more funds. And if we can do that at a large enough scale, we know that we have um, a program from a federal perspective of a, a bunch of dollars that are directed towards a goal that really should be continued. Uh, and the final piece in that is that Here at the forum, not only are we uh, fans of talking about improvement uh, versus just proof of whether something should exist or not, but talking about continuous improvement um, at the front lines where the adults who are working with young people and doing that not by necessarily handing them a new curriculum to implement that's an evidence-based program. We know that those are very hard to implement with fidelity. Um, especially if you don't have the resources, but really helping practitioners take this science and understand its relevance for their practice, for how they make decisions about how they work with the group of children they have in front of them on a day-in, day-out basis. And that means really helping them understand the science um, and understand the power that they have to transform lives rather than thinking that that power lies in a curriculum. So to close, I hear you talking about practitioners and policymakers and educators and scientists and parents and teachers and community uh, uh, leaders and all around this goal of uh, changing the trajectory, improving the trajectory of, uh, of, of youth's lives, of children's lives. And there's this incredibly admirable contradiction that in doing these conversations I often come across and I and I feel it with you and I feel it in in what you are saying around all of those different groups on the one hand you see some of the hardest parts of life you see children who don't get the benefit of the best of what learning and development should offer who as a result don't get fair access to opportunity or growth or even to health at times and yet you and others remain it seems to me relentlessly optimistic 
How do you do that? That's a good question. Um, I am optimistic. First, I'm optimistic because, and again, the science reinforces this, because of the incredible resilience that young people have. Um, And so we as adults can miss multiple opportunities to help young people reach their potential. But when we finally get it right and offer them opportunities, we know that they can take advantage of them and that they can often catch up uh, and, and succeed. And so the thing that we know now from the science, which has just been validated, is the wonderful resiliency of young people, the fact that we can, uh, and then the science is behind this as well, we can change the odds for young people's success at almost every point in the developmental process. Um, And so this is not about if we don't get to them by kindergarten or we don't get to them by third grade, it's over. We really constantly have to be looking for opportunities to increase young people's potential by giving them this right optimal experience and they and trust that they will take advantage of it. So I'm optimistic first and foremost because um, both of my personal experiences um, with young people who have been coming out of these situations, but also um, because the science tells us um, that if we manage to get it right as adults, young people can take advantage of it. The second thing that makes me optimistic is the fact that learning does happen everywhere and that as we bring this science, which is becoming both more powerful but also simpler to explain, as we bring this power into a broader set of community organizations who can advocate for change, as we broaden the definition of where learning happens so we can both acknowledge that the inequities that we thought were there just in K-12 actually are exacerbated um, when you look at access to quality learning experiences across broader settings and across broader times, we also have more people who are willing to step up and do this. This does not have to just be on the burden of schools. And so as we broaden the definition of where learning happens, but we also broaden the definition of who can contribute to young people's learning and development, that makes me optimistic that fundamentally there are lots of folks who can contribute to this. And I'll I'll leave with the uh, one final thing, which is the National Teacher of the Year this year, and I don't remember his name, but he's from Richmond. The National Teacher of the Year this year is a teacher who is teaching in the juvenile justice system, teaching young people who are in detention. And while he has them for that short period of time that they're in detention, he's not just helping them with their reading skills and math skills. He's also helping them build their critical skills to analyze how they ended up in that system, both in terms of personal choices, but also in terms of institutional biases and structural biases. So they're leaving with a greater sense of understanding and agency. So we know that learning happens everywhere, and we know that there are dollars, resources, and people who are the bright spots, who are helping young people wherever they may happen to find them. We just need to put a spotlight on this, and we really do need to, in some ways, disentangle the idea of learning and development from our current perceptions of what schooling has to be. Yes, the the gentleman that you're talking about is Rodney Robinson, and he's in, seems you. yes he seems inspi- incredibly inspiring in in what he's doing in Virginia, um, and if I can, uh, you are certainly inspiring in what you have done uh, throughout your career, uh, not only probably in Virginia I assume, but everywhere else. So thank you, thank you for your time today, and thank you uh, for the work that you've dedicated your life to. It was a pleasure talking to you. 
That was my conversation with Karen Pittman. My thanks to Karen for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon. Mm-hmm.